Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 226 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Amber Carnes. Amber is the founder of Body Positive Yoga and the co-creator of the Accessible Yoga Training with Jeevana Heyman. You may remember Jeevana. He's the founder of Accessible Yoga, and we spoke on episode 176, so go back and listen to that one too if you have not already. So Amber and I talk today about her journey of making peace with what she refers to as having a bigger body and how it was challenging for her to enter yoga spaces about 15 years ago when she started. But it was really the beginning of the process of unraveling her conditioning around just not appreciating her body and feeling like she had to punish her body and she had to, you know, be thinner to be happy or to be acceptable. We talk about so many things that I think so many of us can relate to on this episode, including the bonding over over diet talk and being self-deprecating about our bodies and how we can shift that. I also just want to invite you to listen to the end because she and Jeevana Heyman over the past year have taken their curriculum and put so much of it online. And there are just so many great offerings, including Amber's course, Making Peace with Your Body, which looks like a lot of fun and offers some community as well. So enjoy the conversation with Amber. Well, hi, Amber. Thanks so much for being here to talk to me today. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I know that I, I was introduced to you through Jimena Heyman. I'm wondering where you are based since everything is in the online world now. Like all of the, uh, everything I looked at for you was online. I know, right? I'm based on the internet, but <laughs> for, we're all based in the little Zoom squares now. Yeah. Uh, Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland is oh, where okay. I live. Okay. I've been here um, almost two years now, but lived in Virginia most of my adult life and grew up in South Georgia. So, so you're kind of a, I mean, aside from the Georgia, you're like a mid-Atlantic Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I, I think most people don't really know the mid-Atlantic exists unless you live there. Cause it's yeah. just, it's, people just think of it as East coast or the South, but the mid-Atlantic is like its own little, little, it has its own little feel to it. It's true. It's yeah. true. So I know that you started yoga almost two decades ago. I would love to hear what brought you to yoga and what your experience was like in those early days. Yeah, it's weird to hear you say that two decades. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like almost <laughs> 40 and I found in my early 20s. So yeah, I guess it is. So yeah, I came to yoga in my early 20s. Um, I found yoga through a gym that I was working out at. And I'll just say that at that time, I was really on a big like body hatred weight loss project. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Back then I was very, you know, I'm in a bigger body and I always have been since my like preteen years. And for many, many years, that body was not a body I wanted and wanted to be associated with and, you know, was on the sort of diet culture rat race of losing and gaining weight and all of that. So I, I, at the gym I was working at, this trainer was like, you should do yoga on your rest day. Cause it doesn't really count as exercise, but you'll still burn a lot of calories. Like that was my intro to yoga, <laughs> which I think there's a bit more to it now. But, um, <laughs> so I, you know, at the time was just really kind of wrapped up in that and was like, okay, coach. So like off to yoga, I went and I, I was nervous to go because I didn't think that 
folks in larger bodies practice yoga. I'd never seen anybody that looked like me in like an advertisement or a magazine or, you know, whatever my awareness was of yoga at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was nervous to go. I, I remember getting there and like I was the only bigger person in the class, but I don't really remember much about that first class, like what we did in the class or whatever. But it did make a big impression on me when I left because I remember like getting in my car and starting to drive home. And a few minutes into the ride, my what I call my mean girl soundtrack started back up. It's like this voice, you know, that's always in your head, like, mm-hmm. you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid. Why'd you say that thing? You know, that judgmental, like negative self-talk loop. And like, I noticed that started back up and that got my attention. Cause if it started, that minute it stopped oh, <laughs> for a few yeah. minutes after class. Right. And so for me, that was a really big deal. Like I felt like that voice was just like always there. Like second guessing me and checking my behavior and checking my appearance and, you know, sort of like this, always this anxious self-talk. And I didn't really know she could shut up, you know? (laughs) That's huge. That's huge. It was huge. It was really interesting and amazing to like, feel like I could have some kind of effect over like my mind or my internal state, my nervous system. Um, So that wasn't something that I had ever really experienced before. And so I got really curious about that. I was like, I want more of that quiet. (laughs) And that sort of like down regulation feeling. And so I went, I went back to class. I was like, maybe it was the class, you know, and I did repeat the results of my experiments. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I would notice, you know, when I would leave those classes, I would feel calmer. I would feel a little more comfortable in my skin. My negative or my self-talk would be a little nicer, you know, even if it was just like for a few hours after the class. And, you know, at first yoga wasn't really, um, I wasn't really going for the physical parts of the practice. In fact, it was, you know, kind of difficult for me at first. I was in a larger body. I wasn't someone who, I feel like I uh, was not getting the kind of information I needed to work with the body that I had, you Mm -hmm. know, I'd Mm -hmm. I'd get a lot of the teaching would be sort of like, use a block if you need one or like, we'll do this and you can rest in child's pose. And so like the physical parts of the practice weren't really thing I was after. In fact, it was just, it was kind of frustrating in that regard, but I would get so many mental and emotional and nervous system kind of benefits from going that it kept me coming back. You know, it was a few years into my practice before I met a teacher who, you know, I felt like really saw me and not saw me in a way that was sort of like with a bunch of assumptions on what my body could or couldn't do. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And so a lot of my, you know, early practice was kind of spent figuring some things out on my own, you know, being able to really like approach movement for the first time as an adult as something that was. I was doing with my body instead of something I was doing to my body, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I really do credit that uh, trainer or whoever who was like, it's not exercise, but you'll burn cal, you know, because (laughs) I, I didn't really treat it like an exercise class. Uh, When I would go to the gym or be on the treadmill or whatever, there was sort of this intention behind it of like, I'm trying to do something to fix or change the body I have that I don't like. And because he said yoga is not exercise, I don't know, for some reason, I just didn't even approach it the same way, which was such a, I don't know, the beginning of the end for me of the whole diet culture thing, because yoga really helped me to be with and in and present in my body as it was, rather than this sort of like punitive or external 
you know, focus on like what was lacking or what needed to be fixed or changed. It was really about that embodied experience. And I think a kind of, you know, acceptance and non-attachment, even though I couldn't have really named it back then, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it was really the first time that I, I got to experience like a positive embodied physical experience as an adult, because Mm -hmm. movement for me as a kid was really joyful or just like a means to an end, you know, like I'd ride my bike because I need to get somewhere. I'd jump on the trampoline because it was fun or I'd go swimming because it was hot. You know, it wasn't anything about nutrition or good people exercise or lazy people don't or my body needs to look a certain way. You know, like all these things we kind of like learn and layer on top of movement as we grow up. And so it was really interesting to me to kind of get back to that like kid-like sense of movement where it's more integrated. It's like, I'm doing this because I want to receive a benefit, you know, in this case, like mental health benefits and calming anxiety and all of that. Or, you know, I want to do it because it feels good, or I want to do it because it's joyful. And like that reorganization and reorientation around that physical practice and movement, or even something that feels like exercise could have a completely different mindset. Mm -hmm. That's about honoring and being with the body that I'm in instead of this like sort of mean attitude of like, well, I'm going to fix you and change you. And like, then we can be happy. If Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Oh my gosh. Completely, completely. I think it's amazing that, you know, you just wandered into a class like at your gym Mm -hmm. and regardless of whether that was like the best teacher ever, or, you know, a new teacher or, quote unquote, not such a great teacher, like the yoga kind of just, it just did its work, right? Like it, it worked for you. So you talked about kind of the being on the diet rat race. And I think, I don't know, any human woman on the planet can really relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Like I, I, I very much relate to the, like being punitive with exercise before Mm -hmm. yoga. And even sometimes like during my yoga path, like Oh, sure. Yeah. But um, I'm curious for you, how long do you feel like that unraveling took? Because you said that you started and you were going to the gym a lot and then the yoga was almost like your rest day. At what point did you feel like this is working for me and I want to do this more than the punishing my body through working out or not that working out always has to be punishing your body. I work out, but yeah. Yeah. Like how did that, how did that process go? And were there any bumps along the way? For sure. It was not a linear journey. And I will say like, you know, almost 20 years in or whatever, it's still a daily practice. And that's what I'll say about body acceptance and yoga. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Why I think that they actually work really well together. Like for me, yoga was like a catalyst for this bigger journey of body acceptance, which, you know, didn't all happen on the yoga mat. I think around the time that the same time, that I was going to yoga um, at first, I was also kind of getting my feminist and social justice education. I mm-hmm. was like, you know, and most of that was happening on the internet. It's not like I went to school for it, but or it was happening just in life and through the various communities that I was part of. And, you know, I was learning more about systems of oppression and how, you know, how diet culture actually functions in the world. And, you know, I was learning things about honestly started that journey because I was trying to figure out like why I couldn't keep weight off on a diet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But all the research that I ended up doing, and I ended up reading a book called Health at Every Size by Dr. Lindo Bacon, uh, which is an amazing primer if you're not familiar with 
weight neutral approach to health or, you know, you kind of want to understand how diet culture functions within, you know, not only the diet industry, but like the medical industry and stuff like that. It's a really good book. But I I ended up finding out that like, you know, a lot of the things that I assumed that were true about bodies or diets or weight loss or health or any of that actually was all not the case. And that, you know, I was learning that the diet industry is a, you know, I think now it's $78 billion a year industry with a 95% failure rate. You know, most people people do not keep weight off beyond one to two years, the vast majority of people. And, you know, I was finding out about the racist history of the BMI chart, for instance, which is something we use to determine you know, health status for a lot of people, even though it's not a very good tool for measuring health. So, you know, and then I was, you know, learning more about how capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy all are sort of layered and woven into diet culture and how like ubiquitous that is in our lives. And so, you know, the more that I read and researched and kind of like immersed myself in this, I guess I would say like it's a political education it only catalyzed me further into what I was like really learning in my skin and bones and muscles and fat and everything else that was on the yoga mat. Like I felt like I was learning it in two ways. Uh, I was learning it through a physical way because I was realizing that my body, you know, maybe played a bigger part (laughs) than just, um, you know, an object to uh, Mm -hmm. to try to fix all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. in that, Mm -hmm. Oh wow. Actually, you know, I can have, positive feelings about and in this body. Um, I can feel healthy and free in a body that society has told me is the opposite of what's good, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in the, my mind was getting an education too, both in, you know, the yoga philosophy that I was learning as I stayed with the practice and started to read more and do more, but also in the way of like, understanding like why we get so messed up about bodies in the first place and Mm -hmm. finding out all of that information about how diet culture sort of conditions us to treat our bodies as problems to be fixed and how capitalism equates our worth with our productivity and, you know, all this sort of conditioning and, and things that, you know, like when I look in the mirror and think like, oh, gross, like, who profits from that? Like who told me I was gross, first of all, and who and why is that something that it's like it benefits a whole industry and yeah. a and a and a larger system, you know, for like you said, the vast majority of women on the planet to have had this experience where they where we treat our bodies as as problems to be fixed all the time or like an object to be gazed upon, you know, that we have to we have a mandate to keep it a certain way. And so I I feel like both were such a big part of that journey for me. And I, you know, I really owe a lot to the fat activists that came before me and all the, you know, the people on the Fat Shanista Live Journal community and sort of like a bunch of the early blogs around body acceptance that I think really initially got me interested in in this work and and got me doing it myself. But I'll just say that it is like the yoga practice, body image work is something that is a practice. You know, yeah. it's not one and done. It's not right. like, oh, I went to this weekend intensive with someone who teaches you how to like love yourself. And now I've never had another negative thought. You know? Right, right. I, I've been working at this for a long time. And I'll say that 
you know, the one thing we're guaranteed about bodies is that they're going to change, you know, from, so from day to day <laughs> throughout the seasons of our lives. So, you know, it's kind of funny, like recently I've had a whole new sort of, I don't know, package of body image issues to like, uh, uh, work on and, and encounter and in a, in a realm where I thought like, oh, I'm kind of done because aging has happened. Body size changes have happened um, mm-hmm. in the past year for me. And so it's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, recovery from an addiction or an eating disorder. Like you're always in recovery from diet culture. <laughs> I, that's um, what I thought of when you said it's a daily practice. Like, yeah, I think that's just a very freeing, just a reminder for people that, you know, people might look at you and say like, oh, she's, she's figured it out. Like it's easy. It's easy for her now. She loves herself. You know, it's everything. She embraces everything about herself, blah, blah, blah. I want to be like that. And it's like, we, we do this to other people. We want other people to have the solutions and Mm -hmm. to right And, and, and you're saying like, I'm in the trenches with you. I'm, you know, I can guide you and I can lead you, but like, this is every day for all of us. And I just think so many things are like that when you're trying to unravel your conditioning, whatever it is, it's just Mm -hmm. to remember, like, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy all the time. You're constantly reframing. It can get easier, but you still have to consciously reframe. That's right. Because culture is not like dominant culture is not going to stop showing you magazine covers and ads and, you know, everything that we get bombarded with all the implicit and explicit messages that are reinforced by the stories we tell through movies and books. And you know what I mean? Like it shows up in so many ways. And so I feel like we we have this constant practice of unlearning and relearning of like detoxing your media feed and like putting new positive inputs in. And like, there's a lot of things like that, that I think it's not a, it's not a one and done. And, and I want to just reiterate what you said about like, you know, if people look at, I don't know, people that are in the body positive movement or, you know, that have an Instagram account or whatever that you follow. And you're like, they've got it all figured out. Like I really felt that way too. You know, when I'm talking about like those early blogs that I was reading and I would see, you know, I'd know where I was. I know I hated my body and really thought that I could never get to a place where I felt okay or even, you know, loved myself or whatever. And then I could look at these people and say like, oh, look, they've got it all figured out. Like they write about the way that they've you know, come to a place of acceptance. Like I could see the beginning and the end. And I just thought like, oh, those people are like freaks of nature. somehow. <laughs> like, right. They have something special about them that's yeah. allowed them to get to this like confident place. But now that I'm one of those people, uh-huh. <laughs> I know that that's not true. And like the thing that's opaque, I think to us is that like messy middle part. And that's mm-hmm. the part people don't share on social media most of the time. That's the part that you know, doesn't make it into the highlight reel when you talk about your journey. But I think like that is why body acceptance work like yoga, I think is best a practice best done in community because we can share our stories with one another and we can really be there to, you know, say like, yeah, this is normal. Like this isn't, you know, your the negative talk in your mind is a, a product of for me, 39 years of conditioning of, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds to thousands of messages a day, every day. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like, yeah, it might take a minute to mm-hmm. like <laughs> unwind some of that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I grew up as a ballet dancer and I was ridiculed by my dance teacher for like the shape of my legs and like mm-hmm. publicly and for, you know, and once I 
went through puberty early and had breasts, like I stopped getting parts. And I just thought it was like really normal to be taught to just hate your body. I just thought it was just really normal. And then I just sort of wasn't good enough. And I don't know, you probably know that I worked at yoga journal, sort of like in the heyday of the thin, perfect (laughs) models. (laughs) And I will admit, like I was unconsciously part of that machine. Like I'm not proud of it, but like, you know, that was part of my conditioning and I felt ugly and gross compared to those people. And my point is that it really wasn't until I had my daughter that I was like, "Uh uh-uh, no more, no more. Because when you have a baby that becomes a toddler, you start to notice how people around you talk about their bodies in front of the child. Mm-hmm. And I won't like name names of people in my life, but just people saying like, oh, you know, you've always been so skinny. I've always been so fat or, oh, my thighs are oh, just weird little things. Yeah. Yeah. And I very much understand it because we're just bombarded by images just constantly. And I would think about that when she was really little too. Like if I took her downtown, it was like every kiosk, she's pointing at different images, right? Because that's what they mm-hmm. do. They just take in everything. And I was like, oh my God, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And like one of the things that you've talked about that I think is so important. And I hope that every woman listening to this will just not be, you know, not be hard on themselves about it, but just like take it in. You talk about this sort of fat talk that mm-hmm. women do amongst each other. And that just reading that, I was just like, yes, this is, yeesh, this is one thing we could all work together to stop, you know, to try to stop doing. I wonder if you could just kind of talk about that a little bit. I think this, first of all, is an experience that a lot of people can identify with. And I assume that men do this too and have their own like version of it or whatever. But, you know, I've, I've always experienced this as like an extremely gendered thing where, you know, folks know what we're talking about like that, yeah, I mean, I call it fat talk or um, body bashing, kind of this bonding that happens, yeah. right? When you're, oh, you're so skinny, but I hate my fat thighs. Oh, no, your fat th- your thighs aren't fat, but my butt is huge. You know, that whole yeah. script. And it's like, if someone says one of those things, like, you know what you're supposed to say in response. Like, we've I all know. been trained on it, right? And I think that, you know, I I agree. I don't want anyone to beat themselves up. Like, I've participated in this for sure hundreds and thousands of times in my life. But I think that we can be a little more aware around it and make sure that if we're talking about bodies, that we're really thinking through like what it means and what what it means that we're saying. Because, you know, I think that this um, this sort of public display of like body bashing and self-criticism, like it serves a couple of purposes in our culture. Like the first thing that it does is you know, it's this type of, I think, like a public performance of fat phobia almost. Mm -hmm. Um, And even if you don't mean it in a malicious way, but what it does is it sets you up for the folks around you to know that like you're on the right side, quote unquote, Mm. of this issue, right? It demonstrates that like we're willing to uphold the status quo of diet culture, which includes the mandate to police all the bodies around us, including our own, right? Mm that we should always kind of be vigilant, right? We don't want to be fat. Or if we are fat, we should be working on that all the time. That's what dominant culture tells us. And so like when we do this 
body bashing stuff out loud about ourselves or about others, it signals to the people around us that we know that fat is bad and thin is good and and where we are on that like spectrum of morality, right? Mm-hmm. That we're always like working on ourselves um, to, to better ourselves. Because, you know, in our society, I think that like being in a larger body is seen as a type of moral failure. You know, health is is held out as a moral obligation and definitely in our culture, health is connected to worth. And so when we talk out loud about, you know, our cheat days or good foods or bad foods or who, you know, did good and went to the gym and who did, you know, all of those things, you know, there are rewards for that and there are consequences for choosing to accept a body that's not perfect or good enough, according to culture, like rather than talk down to yourself. And I, but I think that like most people, when they do this type of like fat talk stuff, it's kind of this weird bonding ritual. It's um, a bonding I, ritual. It's insane. I, no, I, don't, I don't mean it's insane. It's just, I only no, mean it's it insane is, because it's so normalized. Like it I, is you normalized. Know, yeah. But like when we sit here and think about it, it is weird, right? It's definitely weird. <laughs> but it is normal. Like it's part of being socialized and raised as, as a woman, I think. Right. At and least it's, in American culture. And so, you know, and I've heard this conversation literally everywhere. It's not just like a certain type of woman that does this, like Fortune 500 office, yoga studio, the grocery store, the beach, you know, fundraisers, the church, like everywhere I've heard this conversation. And so I think it's so ubiquitous that this kind of like diet talk, it appears to bond us against like a common enemy, you know what I mean? But actually the enemy (laughs) that we're battling are our own bodies, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? And I think it doesn't actually bond us, but it ends up putting us in competition with one another, right? Because the whole thing, beauty standards, this sort of ranking system of where your body falls on the spectrum of worth or morality, those standards exist to keep us like striving to assimilate into a body type that is only representative of a tiny fraction of the population. Mm -hmm. And you know, beauty currency is a real thing. Like there are real rewards for fitting into the top level of that body hierarchy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when this hierarchy gets set up to say that like only the, you know, the people that look young and thin and, and white and cisgender and, you know, all the things that, that are held up as, as worthy, you know, then it, it says that there are winners and losers, you know, when it comes to the type of body you live in. But the truth is like none of us wins when our bodies are basically just reduced to objects either to be gazed upon or, you know, to be ranked in some sort of like perception of worth, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll just say this, um, but I don't want to hear your thoughts, but like if we, you know, if our value and worth is determined by those, you know, with the most power and privilege. Um, I think it's really difficult to to connect with our our personal power or our personal, totally. you know, notions of worth when what we're doing is looking at an external definition of worth that, A, we don't really have that much control over, you know, if we look at the statistics on, you know, those who try to intentionally change their bodies and then who can actually maintain that is very small, two to 5% for even a year. But also, you know, I think that if we're constantly striving to meet up to some arbitrary standard that we didn't even create, 
I don't know, that keeps us really busy and focused on things that benefit some people, beauty industries, diet industries, I don't know, any health or, you know, medical things that are wrapped up in that journey, but that don't ultimately serve us or serve our best interest. Totally. I was going to sort of bring up what the, this last point that you just hit mm. upon, which is, I, I, I just was thinking as you were talking about it, like, I can't think, and maybe I'm just not thinking of it right now, but I can't think of a parallel example between men where it's like, I'm going to be self-deprecating. No, I, you're great. I'm going to be self-deprecating. No, you're great. Like think of it. If a guy was like, no, you're so good at basketball. I didn't get that layup. No, you're so good at basketball. I did you see me behind the line today? It was so bad, you know? Whereas, and so it's like this way to diminish ourselves. It's so, it's so frustrating. I, I, it's this way to women are just taught from like the youngest, youngest, youngest age to diminish ourselves in various ways so that we are more acceptable. And so I think it's not even just the, just within, when we do this within groups of women, it's like, it is like you said, it's this bonding, but it's also this way of not taking up too much space in the larger culture as well, Mm -hmm. making ourselves more palatable, whether it's through our, our tone of voice or the things that we talk about or the way that we look or the way our bodies look, it's making ourselves more palatable to just what's acceptable or what's like you said, sort of, you said it sort of better than I'm thinking of it right now, but like the currency, it's giving you the currency within the larger, the larger society. And it's just so fascinating to me. It's so, I mean, the people who would comment about their weight in front of my toddler are people I would never think would be self-deprecating, right? Like, just like you said, these conversations happen everywhere and it was so automatic. And some of them who were family members, I would correct. Like, I would like, do not say that. Oh, she's two. She doesn't understand. Yes, she Uh does. Do not. I don't want to hear it. And of course she's going to be exposed to it elsewhere, but at least in her own home amongst her own family, we're taught like to just embrace and just actually be happy existing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, it's just interesting, like how complicated we make it, you know, to just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And, you know, I think that what you're saying, what you're describing is, you know, we're basically socialized from birth to have this orientation toward our bodies, that our bodies are problems to be solved. And, you know, it's a, it's a microcosm of of how capitalism teaches us that our work is con- our worth is connected to our productivity you know yeah. and and i think that conditioning you know is so um invisible to a lot of people that like until you see it until you for you it was the wake up call with your with your child and you heard that stuff in a different way mm-hmm. where it's just part of the like the air you breathe and and the water you swim in any other time, you know, that until you have, until a person has that sort of like wake up call moment, for me, it was doing all that research to figure out like, why can't I be thin, which is what I want more than anything else. Like, Mm -hmm. and finding out like, oh my gosh, like there's this whole other side of this that I didn't even know about. Then it's not even, um, it seems like it's not even a thing. You know what I mean? It's so invisible and woven into the way that we're that dominant culture functions that everyone is 
so that when somebody like has lost weight, everyone automatically compliments them, yeah. right? Because weight yeah. loss has to be positive every single time when we know people lose weight for a lot of different reasons. And some of those reasons are not always positive, you know? <laughs> and so I just think that like anything, awareness precedes change. And so that I think that's one of the reasons like mindfulness practice or yoga practice can be so useful in this type of work if you're doing work on body image or self-acceptance or things like that because that mindful attention to what your thoughts actually are when you look in the mirror and just have a general feeling of like ugh like we can't change it until we know what's what's present do you know what i mean and yeah. so sometimes you know i think that this this way of being in the world where it's just like the thin ideal is so um assumed to be the default of what's good and right and and we can extend that to not only body size but all the other things that are wrapped up in beauty standards which is of course racism and ableism and sexism and all that stuff having that awareness and that is like such a big part of of even beginning on that journey so that you can understand what has to shift and change first but it's difficult when it's conditioned into us from such a long, uh, young age and from so many places too right yep. it's not just our our family or our friends but it's our church and our school and our teachers and coaches and every movie and book and magazine and ad we take in like all of those have messages about this stuff mm -hmm. and so I think noticing is just the first step of like when you consume something, when you consume media, when you have a conversation, when anything that's in the realm of, you know, body stuff, like this make me feel better or worse? Does this make me feel more connected to who I am or like I need to change who I am? And like, that's kind of a good, you know, litmus test for me of maybe I need to evaluate this and, and have a little bit of media literacy here and understand how this stuff really gets into our our psyche in a way that's like your brain has these shortcuts. Like maybe it doesn't even consider like what's, what's beautiful and who taught me that, but it's just sort of like a, a gut reaction at this point. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of untangling to do sometimes. I think. I, I think it's great that you did this research and uncovered like just some of the um, falsehoods that are associated mm -hmm. with being any different size body. I remember reading, well, first of all, like I've been through cancer treatment, so I know how little, uh, you know, elite doctors are trained in nutrition. Right. <laughs> it's really crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, at least my doctors admit it. They're just like, okay, we're going to send you to a nutritionist to talk about cancer nutrition, you know, but it's just not there. And so like you said, like a lot of what's presented is just this kind of, um, it's like so vague and so, like, in other, in other words, like the information that they're presenting is so general and so broad and so vague. And I can remember reading a story a few years ago. I can't remember where it was published or, so I can't like provide people with the link, but it was a woman, it was a first person story. It was in like Voxer, you know, a good publication. And she was telling a story of going, being on the diet hamster wheel and that she finally lost weight by essentially like starving herself. And mm -hmm. she went and told the doctor, like, I really don't feel well. I'm fainting, you know, 
each day at this time I'm shaking, like my pulse is really high. And he was like, wow, but you know, you lost 10 pounds. And that was when she just kind of realized like, this is not any other person who would come to him and say this, what he would refer them to like an eating disorder specialist. Right. And Mm -hmm. yet he was kind of applauding her for this quote unquote willpower. Yeah. It's an incredibly common experience for folks in larger bodies to get praised for weight loss, uh, attained by any means and often behaviors that will be labeled anorexic or disordered, um, in a thinner person will be praised and congratulated in a, in a person in a larger body, which, you know, begs the question, like, are we really talking about health here or something else? Right. Right. (laughs) I'm wondering just for like reference for people, do you have any blog posts where you kind of talked about what you discovered or anything or any, like anything I can include? you know, on the show notes of, of, of like good sources for reframing your perspective. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say, um, I can, I'll send a couple of books and things like that, that I recommend folks check out, but I'll name a few off the top of my head, but definitely y'all check the show notes because I'll send a few more things. Health at Every Size and uh, Body Respect are two books by uh, Lindo Bacon and Lucy Aframore. And they're both really well-researched, lots of scientific data to back up everything that's in there. But they talk about a a weight-neutral approach to health and wellness and that, you know, and at those books, and I think the the concept behind Health at Every Size, which is a a weight-neutral approach to health and wellness, based in behaviors, right? Um, We know from all the research that we have that behaviors are a way better indication of health than body size in every Hmm. single study. And so uh, those books talk about like, what are the things that we can actually do to have our best chance at health? And so if health is a concern, I know usually when the conversation turns to body acceptance, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, we should feel good about ourselves. But like, what about your health? You know, as if, (laughs) as if working to accept your body means that you're just going to go like eat cake all day or, you know, whatever. That's not really... I think uh, (laughs) what actually ends up happening for most folks. And I think that, you know, those books do a lot to address like that question about health. I think those are a good primer. I think that Dr. Joy Cox just came out with a book called Fat Girls and Black Bodies, which is a really amazing resource for women of color who want to dive into this work. And then also just name Reagan Chastain, who has a blog called Dances with Fat. Reagan is a former, um, you know, like national dance champion. And she's oh. also in a larger body and she's a, a researcher and an advocate for around the topics of, of weight stigma and diet culture. And she has a lot of amazing resources around things like what to say when you go to the doctor and, you know, how to navigate different issues that come up around body size and health and that kind of stuff. I also have a lot of Facebook groups that I really like around this topic. And so I'm, I'm happy to share some of those That's as great. well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. My favorite part about the internet, honestly, is being able to find your people and like stuff that you're dealing with. I, yes. I have lots of groups that I am a part of, um, for just various issues in my life that I'm like trying to work on. So I think just connecting people with resources is so helpful. And speaking yeah. of that, let's talk about the online yoga school that you and Jivana Heyman have created the accessible yoga school. Yeah. So I went to the website and I was like, wow, they have so much, like so many different offerings. So 
I wonder if you could tell me kind of the philosophy behind, behind what, what, what you're creating right now. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Jivana, Jivana is the founder of Accessible Yoga and we've been working together a few years. We kind of do similar, I don't know, adjacent things around equity and yoga and accessibility. So we had been connected and I started helping him to lead his Accessible Yoga training, which is a a three-day, like 30-hour training around sort of the Accessible Yoga 101 survey course. Like for a lot of teachers who took their 200 hour and then like felt like they didn't have the information they needed to work with folks with disabilities, older Mm -hmm. folks, people in larger bodies, you know, the times when you need to really make the practice more accessible. And so I had been leading that training for him for, I don't know, maybe a year or two. And then the pandemic hit last March and Juvenile was one of the people that I sort of reached out to compare notes with and sort of, I don't know, cry together or whatever. Yeah, (laughs) We both kind of found ourselves in the same boat, which was we were both traveling yoga teacher trainers and now we couldn't do any travel and it canceled everything. I had been kind of trying to encourage him for a little while to move or to offer like more of his programs online. I've been teaching online for a while. I've had a course with Diane Bondi since 2015 called Yoga for All. And had had really good experiences with that and worked for, well, anyway, teaching online, you know, was something that I was really into. And so he decided in June that we would put the training online for the first time. And we were both just really blown away. And so I helped with that project. Um, My background's in marketing and graphic design, and I've done Uh a bunch of like sort of techie things online. And so we worked together to, to make that happen. And we're really blown away with not only like the amount of people that we were able to register for that first offering, but also just the feedback that we got about how accessible the format was and how many people were able to participate that never would have in person for lots of reasons, right? Like financial, childcare, location, all the invisible barriers that are there for folks with marginalized identities to even like enter a yoga space, you know, that Mm. a lot of that was mitigated by offering it online. And So not only did we want to do that again, we also now had this platform that existed, this learning platform where we could offer other courses. And so we decided to kind of wrap this project of a school around it and started, you know, Jeevan and I really both are interested in addressing the problem of gatekeeping that happens in the yoga industry here in America, um, especially That, you know, if you think about like who becomes a teacher, you know, like if you look at the demographics of who's a teacher, you got to think about like to even take yoga teacher training. Well, before you had to do it online, like you'd have to take time off work. Mm -hmm. You'd have to invest a significant amount of money. You have to have the time to be able to complete the training, you know. And so that means that a large subset of people are excluded from being able to do that. And And who the teachers become, you know, shapes the culture. And so like, this is a big thing that I think needs to be addressed on lots of levels. But one of the ways that we've decided to do that is through this school, which we're hoping to use the platform to, to profile and to uplift and to platform teachers with marginalized identities, teachers who have been underrepresented and underestimated, I think, by the wider industry. You know, Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. and I both 
had noticed that it's like the same people getting the the teaching gigs over and over again, you know, and it's like there's a list of a few experts that people call on for trainings and things like that, but that there are all these amazing teachers we know through the accessible yoga community who are doing just like great work. And so we started, we've started to offer some of those courses. Kelly Palmer, who's an amazing uh, black yoga teacher from Charlotte, North Carolina, has offered her course on race and equity in yoga twice now through the school. And Great. it's a course that's created for yoga teachers. To, and also for, you know, you can take it if you're not a teacher as well, to understand like how we participate and uphold white supremacy. And then what are the ways that we can work to dismantle that depending on where we're located, you know, socially and, and with our resources and the particular identities that we might hold. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a really amazing thing to see. And, and the feedback we've gotten from folks have just been really encouraging. Jeevan is running his training, the accessible yoga training online. And we'll be having another section of that in um, April. So did you say um, that 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 main training is like, if you've already done a 200 hour or is it, can you kind of go into that training without having done a training before? Anyone can take it. I will say that it's geared toward teachers. And so you're going to get the most out of it. If you have either, if you know a a good bit and you've, you've practiced a little bit, um, or if you're a teacher, because what we do look at in that course is how to incorporate folks with disabilities or who require adaptive practice or props or a chair or whatever, right? Um, into classes with folks who maybe don't need that stuff. And so we have, you know, what, what we teach in that is how to lead a class with multiple levels or abilities where maybe some folks are practicing from a chair and others are on the mat. And so it's really built around that skill set. And then we have other instructors come in to talk about things like you know, Kelly Palmer talks about race equity. I come in and teach a session about working with larger bodies. We've got somebody that comes in and talks about disability awareness, cultural appropriation. So it's kind of Mm -hmm. an accessibility from many sides um, sort of course, and lots of different folks take it. Yoga teachers, physical therapists, occupational therapists, serious yoga students, you know, who want a little bit more in-depth knowledge. And so that's the main offering uh, through the school right now. We're running that three to four times a year. We just wrapped one up in January and there'll be another one that starts. Um, I think we'll, I think enrollment is open at the end of April and we'll start in early May. And so, and we have a new offering that's coming out in April from Pamela Stokes Eggleston and Amina Nauru, who are two um, leaders in the sort of yoga and service fields, and they're going to be doing a, a teacher's mentorship circle, which I'm really excited about for folks that are maybe coming out of a training or maybe they've been teaching a while and they really want to start to develop their yoga career, but not lose the connection to yoga philosophy and service and social justice. And so we're, you know, if you're interested in social justice and equity work in how to make your yoga offerings more accessible, I hope you'll check out the school and check out what we're up to. Uh, there are a lot of courses that have wait lists forming and also some stuff that's currently active. So we'd love for you to jump in and, and check it out. It's so great that you guys just kind of mobilized and did this. I know my husband and I just put all of his offerings online last year too with the pandemic and I just, I know 
what it takes. And I'm so, I'm so happy to hear that you guys just poof, did all this work because it's really needed. And I think people are really looking for it. And um, I just trust Jeevana so implicitly, his teaching and his, we kind of came up at the same time here in San Francisco. Yeah. I know. It's, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm just, I'm really, really excited about that. And thank you for doing it. Yeah. You also have the course that you offer looks so fun. Shoot. I have it. I have the notes in front of me, but I don't have the name of it. It's the, oh, it's called making peace with your body. It looks yeah. so fun. It's that's thank more you. Of like a community, isn't it? Cause it's live sessions. Yeah. And- so I ran it through um, the school back in October, and I think I'm going to do a big redesign of how I present that material um, if I offer it again, just because of the online format and everything like that. But it is, you know, I'm glad it like had a fun vibe because that is really, I know that all these topics and and feelings around, you know, body image and social justice and, and the yoga practice and everything, like, while they're super serious, I also know that change is difficult and, you know, shame is not a motivator. And I think that for me, you know, learning this stuff in community and really being able to share our stories and share laughs and really like compare notes and, and be in community with one another over the stuff that is really difficult or challenging for me is always like, I don't know, the biggest place of growth and transformation. And so it's really been beautiful to be able to still offer that stuff online, even though I miss the the in-person yeah. you know, magic that happens with that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, there's a wait list on the site right now for okay. the next uh, round of that course, if folks are interested. And yeah, I hope you'll come join, uh, join us and check out what we've been doing. Yeah, I would love to. Absolutely. I will, I will check, check in and see like, there's like I said, there's so many different offerings. I was like, where do I begin? So it's good to give people a little bit of a lay of the land. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Amber. It's just great to talk to you and connect with you. And I I wish you and, and accessible yoga all best. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I will put links to those resources that Amber mentioned and more on the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 226. And I hope you're hanging in there. I hope you are taking care of yourself. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm-hmm.